Isabeau. I'm Morgan. And this is Womance. A podcast about romance novels. About quarterbacks. About actual secret infants. About forced marriages. About the culture wars. About North Carolina. About watching your parents make out. About particle physics. But mostly it's about that first thing. Romance novels. And ourselves. This week we are tackling... Nice. Nobody's Baby But Mine by Susan Elizabeth Phillips. This is book three of her Chicago Stars series and the final text of our Entropy series. Thank goodness. <laughs> we made it. We did it, guys. Well, not quite. Not quite. Finish line is in sight. Inches from the end zone here. Yeah. All right. So back of the book. Genius physics professor Dr. Jane Darlington desperately wants a baby, but finding a father won't be easy. Growing up, Jane's super intelligence made her feel like a freak, and she's determined to spare her own child that's suffering, which means she must find someone very special to father her child. Someone very ellipses, well, ellipses, stupid. Cal Bonner, the Chicago Stars' legendary quarterback, seems like the perfect choice. Unfortunately, this good old boy is a lot smarter than he lets on, and he's not about to be used by a brainy baby mad schemer. That's it? That's it. That's the summary. Oh, wow. That is that is the, the whole summary? Yeah. Oh, wow. That's it. Welcome to 1997. Brevity. There's also a letter to the reader as well as an author's note if you wanted to flesh out your choice a little bit more. But mostly I think you would just buy this book because you really like the Chicago Stars series. Mm-hmm. Which is part of the reason we selected it. The Chicago Stars series was recommended to us when we were looking for sports romance. This specific title has been requested by people, I would say, ever since we started the podcast. So, yeah, it's great to finally be covering Nobody's Baby But Mine. It's a thing we're doing. I want to give a special shout out to ECL1111, who gave us the specific recommendation. Also, ECL1111 gave us all vintage secret baby titles. We've got like a classic category on the list. So definitely check out our blog to see the other recommendations that we got for this topic of secret baby. Thank you, ECL1111. Thank you. Okay, y'all, as someone who's been reading romance for many, many moons. How many years? Oh, my first true romance, Kathleen Woodowis, So Worthy My Love. I was 13, so okay, almost 20 years of reading romance. Almost 20 years, yeah. I have a thing wherein, and you and I have talked about it on the show before, where it's like the secret baby is never really a baby. It's like a secret child or a secret toddler or whatever. And that also held true in this one, where like the secret baby was a secret fetus for exactly five weeks. Not even like she hadn't even had her first ultrasound by the time our hero found out. Yeah. So what this really was, was secret baby to get together to forced marriage. Like this was marriage of convenience, forced proximity. I have never read a secret baby or encountered a summary of a secret baby that was actually about a baby. And that's what I wanted. I wanted like a secret pregnancy. I wanted a secret two month old, something like that. The other thing about secret babies that this does hue to is the fact that the baby is always fathered by the hero. Yes. He's never like taking on someone else's child. Like she's never like that lady from Love is Blind where she just didn't mention she had a child for like the first three weeks. That's interesting. That's interesting that you bring that up. I think I've read exactly one book wherein the hero was not the biological father of the child in question. That's a great point. Yeah. Another unspoken feature of the genre. Yeah. Lots of conversations about unspoken features of the genre going on on our Instagram right now revolving around military romance. A lot of people saw that as an opportunity to express thoughts on a genre which does not get discussed, a subgenre which does not get discussed. I don't think that's true of Secret Baby. Secret Baby, I feel like, is a term people pull out at cocktail parties to shock other people Yes, about romance. Because it sounds so very high drama 
trauma and manipulative. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It sounds positively lascivious. Indeed. In concept. And I always think about those category romances with the pregnant lady on the cover. Mm-hmm. But we didn't get that. I'm glad that we got Susan Elizabeth Phillips' take on this, even though I will maintain and argue if I have to choose a hill to die on in this episode, it's that this is not Secret Baby. Because the things that are interesting about Secret Baby, like the manipulation, why you would do something like that, why you would hide it from someone, I think like that's the high drama part of it. Mm -hmm. I can see why, especially if you love angst, like Secret Baby has so much angst built in. I can see why people would be drawn to Secret Baby. I, too, love it when there is, like, a hint of Secret Baby. So, like, I'm not immediately offended. What do you mean a hint of a Secret Baby? Like the Johanna Lindsay one with the Vikings. What was the... Oh, when she was pregnant and she didn't tell him? Yeah, and she's, like, hiding out in the hut, just, like, waiting to leave. Well, that's kind of, like, what this was. For, like, way shorter period of time. It's just the hero was a lot smarter than the Viking King. So true. Yeah. So like, I like a hint of secret baby. I like a whiff. So I wasn't immediately offended that he found out really quickly, but he found out so quickly, like he finds out in like basically chapter four, like the length of this book is him knowing and her being pregnant. So again, I would call this forced marriage or marriage of convenience rather than secret baby. I don't think you anyone will ask you to die on that hill. And I think people might ask you to die on a hill for different tropes that this is what this is. But I think actually like we've said before, like these ideas of tropes and subgenres are so soupy anyways. Mm-hmm. And then secret baby is something like you say in like winking whispers to one another. It's not really the same as like a sports romance or even an Amish romance. Yeah. It does have that like X factor. Yeah. Even though I would say it's the trope that we've come up against the most and what is arguably the tropiest. But yeah, I don't think anyone's going to ask you to die on the hill of whether or not this is a secret baby but I also don't think there's like a pure idea of secret baby I don't know if there's a platonic type against which we're gonna measure all secret babies I think it is kind of you know like I said I think it's even looser than the other tropes and subgenres do you have any thoughts on that Yeah, I think it's because like you have a strict idea of like secret baby being baby, whereas like I think secret kid counts. At this point, yes, listen, we can all learn and grow as people. And I will say that I assume when I hear secret baby, I picture a small chubby being who does not have object permanence. Okay, (laughs) but secret baby as a trope is used more so to refer to to like any kind of offspring. Yes. But secret baby is punchier than secret progeny. And then secret progeny feels like a subgenre that actually has like a few hard-ish conventions. I think you're right. It's fairly soupy. Like when you find out why you do it, all of those things matter. But like for this not to be the obstacle that they have to overcome in act three makes me think that it's not secret baby. Makes me think that it is indeed forced marriage, which is the obstacle that they have to overcome at the end. But, I mean, can't a book have more than one trope? Oh, for sure. And, like, you know, this one also has, like, humdingers from sports romance. Yeah, this one is also very sports romancy in the way that, like, the character is defined by his relationship to athletics, and that defines his relationship to the heroine. So I think that's really interesting. Mm-hmm. Oh, I had a really good point. Now it's gone, because I wanted to explore the secret babiness, or not secret babiness of it. So, yeah, he finds out that she's pregnant really early on. Oh, that's what I was wanted to talk about. The fact that I think this book structurally is always making problems that it's not really sure how to fix. And even though it has all of these tropes within it, Mm -hmm. I think it resists the romance toolbox, right? Where you always have an out because the people are falling in love. I almost can see the gears turning where it's like, okay, she's pregnant now, but how do I get them back together? Mm -hmm. He has to find out that she's pregnant and then turn to this forced marriage. Mm -hmm. Well, she doesn't think he loves her. They're now in a broken relationship. How do I fix that? Well, both characters maintain their dignity. While also trying to humiliate one another. Yeah, and I think that's really interesting is that this book employs a lot of different tropes. It seems actively trying to resist romance novel patterns. Does that make sense? Maybe, except I feel like every solve is like a very particular kind of romance. Like, I agree with you. This very much felt 
felt like the author was constantly writing herself into a corner and then was like, okay, now what? Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Like, seeing that felt really weird at points, but the solves felt very particular to the genre, like the way in which others come in they're like oh no they're actually great there's also like a jealousy scene that helps the heroine understand that there is a tenderness for her in Cal's heart whereas before like you know without that outside confirmation there wouldn't have been because they're opaque to one another those all feel like romance solves to me there are other parts of this book I was really swept away and the moments where I was swept away almost entirely were B plots oh really yeah and like I didn't feel like I was in a romance anymore with the B-plots. What were the B-plots for you? Because to me, you said plural and that threw me off because I could only think of the one B-plot, which is the second chance romance happening between Cal's parents, Lynn and Jim. Yeah, I think there's like this whole weird move about like the country being better than the city that I was getting really upset with. (laughs) But like, that's not really a B-plot. That's more like a culture war, like virtue signaling thing about like small towns being better. I'm just like, not into it. Yeah, yeah. But you're right. The B-plot of Cal's parents, Amberlynn and Jim. You love Second Chance, though. I'm not at all surprised that that was the more fruitful tree for you. I do really love Second Chance because of the unkst. Well, what makes Second Chance romance unkst more appealing than Secret Baby unkst for you? I think it feels softer and like genuinely less manipulative. I think that's one of the things that's hard to swallow and part of like the salaciousness of describing Secret Baby to a non-romance fan. Whereas Second Chance, it isn't based on a manipulation or like a misunderstanding that you then lie about. Although it can be, but it's not like that. The stakes of Second Chance are only involving the two people inside them rather than like a new life, which I think changes the level of angst. I heard from a relationship therapist on the internet Mm -hmm. on a YouTube video. (laughs) Like a key theoretical belief is that all conflict and relationship comes from deception or perceived deception. Interesting. Like you feel like the person you're with deceived you about who they were or what they cared about or how they felt about you. Ouch. And uh, I think there's a lot of truth there. And so I think for me, that's why I don't like second chance romance. Not only because I don't believe in second chances. (laughs) But also because I think it like romanticizes and complicates and turns into a ballet what is essentially settling and tries to make it feel fizzy. And it's not. Uh, Not wanting to die alone is the least romantic reason you'll try to stay with someone. Which is why I thought like this B plot felt so profoundly unromancy. Like so Jim, Calvin's dad, married this raw boned, which side note, one of my favorite descriptors is raw boned. And I have absolutely no idea why. I think it's just very evocative. He marries this raw boned mountain girl who's like basically living in a tar paper shack at the top of Heartache Mountain in North Carolina. She's 15 when she gets pregnant, which is insane. And then they're poor as church mice and he goes to school and she's like pregnant and trying to make ends meet. And he's been cut off by his rich parents. And anyway, like that's the story. She like learns to be strong. She like cultivates herself. She reads books about art and literature. She becomes... Well, hold on. You're missing a really important part, which is his parents actually re-moneyed him after a year because she reached out to her mother-in-law and said, I need you to teach me how to be like you. Yeah. And so she underwent this My Fair Lady project to become a Southern lady. And his family was satisfied with that choice to sublimate herself. So they gave them back their money. Right. Or their allowance. I mean, he was cut off in the will and then he's like reinstated. Like, that's all true. And so then here we are at this moment. Cal brings home this city girl. They don't like her and they're not fighting about it. They're not really talking about it. And Jim says this insane thing where he's like trying to wound Amberlynn enough to get her to have a reaction. And she's not rising to the bait. And she's like, we have three wonderful sons and a comfortable life. And he says, I don't want to be comfortable. Fury exploded inside of him, fueled by frustration. God damn it, don't you understand anything? Jesus, I hate you. In all their time together, he had never once touched her in violence, but now he grabbed her arms and shook her. I can't stand this any longer. Change back. 
here he is 36 years later telling her to change back into the raw boned 15 year old. What does raw boned mean? I tried to look it up in the book. It's not in the book. What does raw boned mean? It means like hungry and unformed. Like there's something more authentic, but also something tragic about it. Like Dickens uses it a lot, which is maybe why I like it. But it has like that kind of wildness to it, but also young and something tragic, like hungry. I also want to just his family never takes him out of the will or anything after his wife confesses to or becomes this southern lady that resolves all of the friction in their relationship. Yeah, but I mean, that takes a full year. Like she becomes pregnant with their second before that resolve happens. Yes. I just think it's important to note that in their relationship, she sublimates herself under the tutelage of his mother to become more like his mother. Yeah. And then she continues that for the rest of her life. Yeah. It's not like it was like a short term project. No, it's been the project of her life. And now here they are in their like fancy kitchen or whatever. And he's like screaming at her to change back. And she's like, no what's wrong with you? Like, you've been torturing me for months, belittling me in front of our sons. Like, I'm not going to change back. I can't. And that's not what you want anyway. Yeah. And I was like, shit, what kind of book am I in? And we discover it's not just for months. It's been since they were first married because she tells that awful story of when she was selling cookies. He asks her why she doesn't bring it up to his sons when they're in the house. And then it goes into her flashback. Yeah, boy, that story. So when they're first married, she's just had her baby. She wants to make money. She starts selling cookies on campus. He and his friends come over. His friends want to buy a cookie. And she expects him to acknowledge that they're married. (laughs) Yeah. And that it's his baby. And uh, he never does. He just buys two cookies. And throws one of the quarters that she's earned for their family, like, at her. Yeah, to pay for it. And that's the impetus she gets to reach out to his mother and say, I need help being like you. And she never brings it up after all these years. He's the one that has to like deal with his shame. Is constantly performing. Yeah. And then he is like, just go back to the way you were. So that I can feel better. So once again, I'm at this point where I'm like, does he deserve a second chance? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. I didn't want them to get back together. They never do. They never deserve a second chance. I don't know if they never, but like in in this instance, I was like, no, he needs to go to the curb. But it also, I think Jim and his wife, Amber Lynn, and then in her cultivated life, Lynn, were an interesting way to understand Calvin, but also an interesting way for me to understand the town. And I think why I had so much annoyance about the elevation of small town life in this book, because small town life, the deification of it. Yeah. And like, it's so clear that the the small town is forcing these sublimations of characters and like constantly making people smaller and gross and worse. And so then for the book to be like, aren't small towns great? I was like, no, you've shown me a thousand ways why they're not. I'm thinking of the example where she goes to the restaurant. She realizes that Cal has told everyone in town that she's too busy because Cal has this project of making her unappealing because he's going to divorce her as soon as possible. Right. And so he doesn't want his family or his township or really just his family to get attached to her because they recently suffered the loss of a beloved Mm daughter-in-law. And so he wants to make her unbeloved. And so she goes to a restaurant and everyone's kind of cool towards her and suspicious, which is going to happen when you go to most small towns. Well, no, that's not true. Sometimes they're very warm and curious, but in this case, they're cool and curious and uh, it's because he's been going around telling people that she has no interest in meeting them because she's so busy working on her physics stuff. Right and her work is so important. Yeah and is much more important to her than they are. But I mean also the town it's like it's so clear that like however Annie who is Calvin's cantankerous grandmother on his mother's side the mother of Lynn that like class dynamics especially in small towns and then add the south to it none of it feels as picture ask is like the text was trying to make me believe because I'm like all of this other subtext is about how it's not picturesque. Yeah and how they move into a house of like the only like wealthy person from the town was this 
televangelist who got busted on tax fraud. Right. And stole from people. Yeah. And they move into this like super pornographic mansion that has like lots of pornography and mirrored ceilings. And it was owned by that. Yeah. Reverend. And so at the same time, like I kind of see like a self-consciousness about the hypocrisy in details like that. Mm -hmm. And I think it's also interesting. We're talking about city versus country. But in fact, our characters very specifically live in the Chicago suburbs. Mm-hmm. And teach and work in the Chicago suburbs, not in the city proper, mm-hmm. which is different and more closely akin, I would say, to small town living than here in beautiful Chicago. Yeah, I totally agree with that. When they were talking about Glen Ellen and her volunteering her time in Aurora, I was like, oh, wow, you guys are like way out there. Never downtown. I found myself really like irritated by the deification of small town living and like having people in your business and like how that's a good thing and like how people like know you and know your story and I was like I couldn't figure out why I was so irritated in this book by it because like that happens in a lot of romance novels and I'm not usually that irritated and I think it was because of this B plot. I don't think you're actually irritated with the small townness if I may be so bold. Mm-hmm. What I'm hearing, it sounds like, and I had a similar issue. I think there's an issue with the high handedness of what a beautiful relationship is overall. Like when she finally feels loved by his family, they're like telling her what to do. She's like suffocated. Like Cal finally demonstrates his love by insisting she gets a different car, even though she refuses. Like it is. It's all very high handed. The treatment of her as if she's a child, as if she's an idiot. And this is to be understood as love and in fact in like the final act he says you've never been loved before and that's why you feel weird about it now suggesting that her parents were unloving people because of the way they raised her Mm -hmm. partially without a sibling which was like another thing that they villainized but her mother had died and her dad never remarried so like yeah but they really act like her family was just like completely intentionally cruel yeah they do act that way and meanwhile they're mode of being which is to like force her to listen to another round of apologizing from the man she's decided to leave yeah it's like oppressive it got to be oppressive for me in the final act yeah the final act is a lot I think you're partially right I think there is like the way in which love in the small town is smothering that feels super true not only smothering but like infantilizing and then like really reaffirms gender norms in ways that like I think the book had set itself up to like here's this person who graduated high school at 14 and got her bachelor's at 16 and had her PhD by 22 and she like works at this lab and like teaches classes and like so much of that was fine. And then like the fact that like her one and only dream is to like get pregnant by a stupid sperm person so that her baby isn't a genius freak. And I was like, oh no, I'm going to have problems. And then like that is only ramped up in the isolation of Salvation, North Carolina. Those sorts of high handed gender norms where it's like love is control or love is I know what's best for you or love is having a bar fight with, you know, Kevin Tucker. And like, I feel like it was just magnified by the small townness of it. I will say, I really enjoyed the A plot, which was Jane and Cal. I really loved it because I felt the book actually surprised me at every turn. I thought I could predict certain moves. And I think the book presents like his bar fight with Kev as a example of like, he doesn't know how to love someone. He's an idiot. Mm -hmm. He needs to figure it out because our heroine resolves the fight by just relentlessly screaming at the bar and becoming like a larger distraction demonstrates how ridiculous the bar fight itself was that they were fighting indoors over a woman who has her own choices. And both of them also state that I think before the bar fight where they're like, it's up to the lady what she wants to do. And she also says that and they still get into the bar fight. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, let's talk about the first move of the book, which is Dr. Jane Darlington is 
34 years old. She just turned 34 and she decides it's now or never. She wants a baby and she really wants a baby. She wants a family and she enlists her neighbor who comes looking for a cup of sugar, Jody. Jody. Jody, who is a host at a (laughs) restaurant in the suburbs that often hosts the Chicago Stars, which if I want to be nitpicky, like they do mention the Bears as a team that they've played. And I'm like, okay, well, what's happening here? Does Chicago have two NFL teams? They do mention the Bears. Is that the conceit? I mean, they don't really go into it in this book, but maybe in the first two. I mean, that's the conceit. It's like the Giants and the Bills. Buffalo Giants and the Green Bay Bills. (laughs) Maybe they're just like switching up cities and mascots. And maybe that's a way to get around copyright. It's also weird that Chicago has a professional team called the Stars that is not in the NFL. You know, these sports romances don't really think a lot about what goes into an NFL team's name. Like, it's not just like a random mascot. Looking at you, Washington. Yes, very exciting news. What do you think they should be? Kansas City, change your names to the chefs. Please do it. You can still do the chop. We're just going to turn that arrowhead into a butcher's knife. And you're going to be the Kansas City chefs. It's going to be great. It's going to be great. You don't really even have to worry about the merch. You know, most of the letters are still going to be printed. Yeah. Don't have to change the logo a lot. And it speaks to our illustrious barbecue history. Yeah. Kansas City chefs, do it today. All credit to artist Grace Chin. <laughs> for proposing that initially. Yeah, I think whatever they find is going to be better than what they had. So you don't have any suggestions that would be. No. I... Can I ask a really ignorant question? Is it Washington, D.C. or Washington State? It's Washington, D.C. Oh, they should be the wigs. They should be the powdered wigs. The wigs would be good. The team out there, the baseball team is the Nationals. And I was like, so I feel like it should be something like, yeah, the wigs or like something patriotic. The Ella Nankis. Or yeah, at least like a nod. Like I would love it if they were like the Smithsonian. The Donka Fence. The Donka Fence. Ooh, the donkeys would be good. The asses. The Donka Fence. What did you say? The Smithsonians? Even just calling themselves the Congressionals. Yeah, I'd be into that. I love museums. You know, I'm torn because I feel like there can only be one Philly fanatic, and yet I want more of them. But I feel like that would cheapen them. And yeah, <laughs> I know exactly what you mean. There can only be one, but like it would be great if there were more. I know exactly what you mean. I don't think they should be the Philly fanatics. Maybe just the Congressionals. Like we could just have like a screaming, you know, person in a suit. How different is that from football in general? What about the lanterns? Why the lanterns? Because of the use of lanterns as signaling during the Revolutionary War. Oh, like one if by land, two if by sea? That's Boston, though. But I mean, it's contributed to the formation of Washington, D.C. It's true. They did. The capitals. And then it's just a dome. The capitals. Ooh, I like the domes. Dome is a is a slang term for oral sex, though, so I don't think that would fly. I feel like that works even better. I don't think so. No. No. I'm going to put a kibosh on that. They were talking about all sorts of stuff this morning on the radio. Um, and I was like, wow, I wish romance authors in the sports subgenre thought about this. I really like and fumbled that they just did instead of the Broncos, the Mustangs. I thought that was good. Yeah, I thought that was great. OK, first act of the book. Yeah. So Jody is a host at a restaurant quite familiar with the Chicago Stars players. They have a 36 year old quarterback, I believe. Yep, He's in his prime. But he's in his prime. He only dates women who are 20 to 24. He's having a hard time dealing with aging and is played for laughs, which, first of all, unexpected move in a romance novel. Most unexpected move in a romance novel in quite some time. So the plan to get him to knock her up, Jody's said, listen, I know Cal is really uptight. I'm going to help you find a sex worker. And then once he gets laid, he'll be totally fine. He'll be chill. And all the guys are like, oh. And so she poses Dr. Jane Darlington as a sex worker who is delivered to Cal Bonner's house on his birthday by his teammates who are none the wiser and pay her an enormous amount of cash, which, okay. She's going to give to a scholarship fund. Yeah, she donates it immediately. When she arrives, everyone's like, "Uh, you do not look 23. And she's like, I'm 26. And they're like, okay. And so then they get to the house and they're like, she's 24. Like they keep shaving off her age Mm -hmm. and she's kind of has an internal monologue about how ridiculous this is when she shows up at the house 
Cal has an internal monologue about how acceptable sex work is. Mm -hmm. And I want to find an exact quote. He refused to curse on the team because he didn't want to repress his expression. This is his quote. It was a problem he always had with the girls he dated. He was naturally attracted to the nice ones, the ones who cared about other people and weren't just out for themselves. Unfortunately, girls like that tend to be wimps and they'd let him run right over them. A lot of more aggressive women, the ones who might have been able to stand up to him turned out to be money grubbers not that he blamed a woman for looking out for herself as long as she was upfront about it and I think that's actually like a super progressive worldview for 1997 I think the term money grubbers really undoes a lot of that progressivism I don't think it's said with a lot of vitriol I think he's like they're gold diggers and that's fine you just should like be upfront with people about what you want you don't think it's that progressive to say like if a woman is in a relationship for money that that's fine I just don't see it as that progressive As long as she's honest about it. Even for 97. The year Frances McDermott won Best Actress for Fargo. Like the terminology of money grubber, grubber specifically being so negatively evocative. Also this idea of like nice going hand in hand with being a wimp, I don't think is particularly progressive. And that smart tends to skew mean. Throughout the book as well, they say she should have known he was mean because he wasn't nice. Yeah, It's stuff like that that doesn't... I think what he's actually commenting on there is what is a nice girl? Someone who's really passive, right? Like nice girl air quotes. Right. And I think like that conversation is interesting, especially since age is so much a part of it. And I think like if you are 36 and a star quarterback for a nationally recognized team and you're yelling at a 20 year old who's nice, like that's her defining personality trait, maybe give her six more years to find out who she is. Is, you know what I mean? And like, that's kind of where the age stuff got yeah. sticky for me. Cause like, I think it was hilarious to see a man written so insecure about his age. And I thought it was dealt with in a lot of ways that were smart and funny and smart and incisive. Yeah. There were times when I laughed out loud at what they were saying to each other or the situations they were in. Yeah. Like they were hilarious as far as like enemies to lovers. This was a good one. But like his whole thing about age and the fact that people are kind of trying to like gently reprimand him, be like, you know, at least wait till they're out of diapers, like that kind of stuff about age and womanhood got really weird for me because it's like later that felt really smart. Like maybe you just can't handle a full fledged woman. That's why you go out with girls. Yeah. She says that whenever he says you're obviously not 26. Because she said something and I thought like that's smart and also says something specific about the fact that like he feels bad for yelling at people who are not like fully fledged adults like their brains haven't finished growing. So I don't know that this book is progressive, especially since like she's an incredibly accomplished person and like her be all end all is baby. Well, what's wrong with that? What's regressive about it? Nothing's wrong with it. I think that part was fine. But like the contrivance of like, I can't go to a sperm bank because it's mostly like med students, like all of it felt like a contrivance and like one that I could like obviously see. And so like this idea that like a woman is unfulfilled without baby or that part of it just I don't know. I don't think I think it's actually pretty progressive that a woman has decided that she is going to be a single mother because she wants a child. First of all, I want to clarify, I'm not saying the book is progressive. I'm going to say I'm surprised by some of the progressive ideals that I feel were expressed by the hero and actually, yeah, by the book itself. But I wouldn't say that overall it's a progressive book. I would say that no one outside of Jane is ever telling her she needs to have a baby. And everything we get about her wanting a child comes from her her own internality, her like loneliness. And I also think it's interesting that someone was like, I'm lonely. I need a family. She doesn't say I need a man. She says, I want a baby. And I think that is progressive and choosing to do it. Yeah, of course, it's a contrivance. You have to get (laughs) the hero and the heroine together. So how do you keep her from going to a sperm bank? Well, you say that she doesn't want a smart baby. How do you get her to have sex with a quarterback? Well, you have this Mm -hmm. neighbor girl and then you also have his affectation of 
of dumbness that he puts on mm-hmm. in interviews. Yeah, it's a contrivance, but I think it's I think it's not at all regressive. I think it's pretty progressive thinking. Of course, that gets undermined, right? Because nobody's baby but mine, the title of the book, the refrain in the first act becomes, you know, laughed off as like silly thinking in the final act. Mm -hmm. I think maybe part of the problem I have with Jane and like whether or not this book is viewing her progressively or like espousing progressive views through her is that like Jane, you're right to say that she is entirely alone. And the fact that she doesn't have female friends. She does. She has one very close female friend. Right. But we never hear from her because she's on a dig in Africa. Like they're not even exchanging letters or calls. So like there's no one on the page. We never hear from that friend. Right. Like she thinks about that friend in the first act a couple of times, but that friend can't weigh in on what's happening, can't advise her, isn't part of the discussion or even like solace in the loneliness. So like the friend like being so far away is like furthering this isolation and the fact that like the solve is not me meeting more friends or making friends with colleagues or like other stuff like that. It's like baby. Um, Well, a friend is different than a baby. Sure, it definitely is. But there's something sticky here about the way that this book is treating the desire for baby that I'm not ready to be like, yeah, she's like totally owning how she wants to be a mother and like how she's like realizing that and functioning. Like a lot of what is happening to Jane in the first act is so passive. Like her dad dies and she's living in that house that she intended to sell and then never got around to it. Like she is continuing to be harassed at her job because of her status as a young woman in a predominantly male field. Like so much of Jane's fire and agency only comes out in her relationship with Cal that I was surprised by some of the things that this book said, but ultimately it felt pretty tied to a regressive worldview of gender norms to me. Yeah, I would never say that this book doesn't have classical ideas of about gender roles. And I think part of the project of the book is like in her progressive project, she actually found this like regressive lifestyle to be more accommodating. But in the beginning of the book, I really felt like she was owning. I think she was really resistant to her working conditions where her boss, he like demands that she starts submitting reports. And she's like, no, I'm not going to do that. You know, she just says, I'm not going to report on what all my spending is because no one else here is doing it. If you make it a company wide Mm -hmm. project, I'll do it, but I'm not going to do that just because you're asking me to. This is another example of harassment. She was like reporting him. Yeah. So I don't think she was very passive in her working relationship. I can kind of see what's going on. You know, she doesn't have a lot of close friends. I think she's just been like unilaterally focused on her work. And I think once she gets pregnant, she finally has something concrete and present outside of her work that she can commit her energy to, which is her relationship with Cal. Like her work was her only thing outside of her friendship with her friend Caroline. And they're just, you know, exchanging letters with one another while Caroline's on a dig. And so Mm -hmm. that's the only other time we see her be actionable is when she decides she's going to get pregnant. And then when she is in her relationship with Cal, but also in her working relationship. I think she is also assertive there. Mm -hmm. Let's check it out. No, it's dialogue. She says it out loud. No one else has to do this. You're quite young, Jane, and not as well as established as the other. She was also a woman. She thinks to herself. Like, I thought that was internal, but she eventually agreed to do the reports, even though that guy is terrible. But instead, she rose to her feet without a word, marched from his office. So I guess that's a little ambiguous. But uh, yeah, I, I remember being like really surprised. I was also really surprised later in the book, you know, Cal does this professional of love and I thought oh god they're gonna make them end up together now and then his mother just like rolls her eyes at him and Jane just walks in and I was like yeah like that's not good enough and I think in a lot of other romance novels that would have been good enough yeah I think so too like how long the last act is is quite long but like that move was great and like you know I'll give it this like she has sex with him that first time as the fake sex worker and doesn't get pregnant and then goes back (laughs) I was genuinely surprised by that move. Yeah. Finds him when he's staying in a hotel. Hotel in Indianapolis or whatever. I was genuinely surprised by that move. And also like there were enough points in this book where I was like literally generally surprised. There's a lot in the book also about her feeling, you know, 
unbeautiful and being very explicit about what's unattractive about her body. And then Mm -hmm. rather than just like being specific about what's attractive about her, Cal just kind of thinks she is attractive overall. Like part of me is like, oh, well, that's like the realism of being in his perspective. Like, I do not believe that men think very specific things about women's appearance. You know, they always say some bullshit about like, Mm -hmm. you have pretty eyes. Well, what's pretty about them? They're green. It's very generalized. It's very unspecific. It's never poetry. (laughs) It's never poetry. Unless you're with a poet. And if you're with a poet, you have all these other problems to deal with. You sure do. That are significantly worse than just like lackluster compliments. Uh, Hashtag yes all poets. Yeah. But I think I see where you're coming from. And I, I do believe that the book ultimately has this really conservative project. And this was during the culture wars, just like every book in our Ice Wine series, which is to just give people a quick rundown, a time when conservatism versus progressivism was also center stage, but in a much less violent and vitriolic way as it is now. Hillary Clinton said she wasn't the type of woman to bake cookies. And then the American people made her bake cookies. Cookies. And then create a White House cookie cookbook. Yeah, and create a White House cookie cookbook to atone for her sins. Like, that's the kind of thing that was happening. Oprah had a woman on television, a therapist who said women needed to focus on themselves. That was more important oftentimes than taking care of the laundry or things like that, that women need to put themselves first and was booed loudly on national television by a room full of women who felt it was much more important to put your children and your husband first. Right. Oh, God. Oprah had a series during the culture wars, like a bunch of them. I remember clearly one about working moms versus stay at home moms. And like even that kind of like binary antagonism. Yeah, it was all about working moms versus stay at home moms. And it was it was a really tense time for women, especially Yeah, for women, especially. And it's reflected in romance heavily, heavily, heavily. And romance like I think about this book as coming the closest to not ending up on the conservatism side of things of what we've read. Yeah. I think about that historical we read for Ice Wine, where she ends up giving up all of her dreams of travel. She's like, it's better to stay home. The greatest adventure is being in love with you. And uh, (laughs) like that kind of thing. And I think this book comes closest to resisting that because it's like he needs to get a job because he's very upset at the idea of being Holly Homemaker because he feels like work is a measure of a person's worth in the world and he says like you work you have such worth in the world he does say that I highlighted that where it's like he's unworthy of her because her work is important and he needs important work and I remember thinking that this feels really good and smart because this is usually something that comes out of like a heroine's mouth or her internality and she does she continues her really important physics work she wins an award during her pregnancy like she does tons of stuff that would gesture towards being on the more progressive side of things but she also does things like she supersedes to her husband's family just like his mother did before her he starts referring to his parents as our parents to her which i thought was really weird nope gross super not into it i'm sure people do that i just can't conceptually refused. No, thank you. Yeah, like this book is really hard to put a finger on because she also ends up with what I feel is a very progressive idea of like, I'm going to have a child on my own because that's what I want. That's what's missing from my life as a family, as a home I want to return to. And then she ends up being like in the final act saying like, nobody's baby but mine. What a silly thing to say. She looked up and she's looking at the grandparents and the great grandmother and the husband and the uncle and she's like it's all of our baby also super destructive because like nobody's like parasite but mine (laughs) like that's what they are essentially like that's yours to deal with as you see fit but that's not the attitude of the book I mean the attitude of the book here is like you didn't have a community poor little orphan brilliant genius and now you have a village Yes. Like one of my favorite parts in the last act is where like Jane and Lynn have decamped to Annie's home on Heartache Mountain. And they're just like, you know, Lynn lets her, you know, nails go and she lets her hair stop being dyed. So she goes gray at the roots and she's like wearing these flowy stuff and like they're dancing to Rod Stewart and like they're all sharing each other's clothes. Yeah. And like, you know, they're gardening. She enters into a coven. Yeah, that's exactly it felt very 
Yaya sisterhood in those moments. And like very specifically so, like it almost felt like Midnight Margaritas in Practical Magic, you know, like that scene of like how Maiden Mother Crone is sort of working in this like witchy, you know, version of feminism. Yes. They always say she just wants to grow her baby right now. Yeah. Yeah. And this idea of like brooding and like you're now going to go to the mom hut. Yeah. And like finish baking as a human being while you finish baking your baby. And like they invite in this like young virile man just to make them all feel desirable and make them laugh. Kevin Tucker. And they also welcome in like the pure son Mm -hmm. who is Ethan, the minister. And then they reject the like sexual beings, the truly sexual beings who are Cal and his father, Jim. Who have wronged the women. Who have wronged the women. And must atone. But there's also this moment where Jane points out, you know, everyone's been on your side this whole time. Mm -hmm. Everyone's been talking about how great you are. None of them are on my side. None of them are really my family. There are just like these glancing moments of self-awareness that make me really like this book and like atone for a lot of the sins of the book. Yes. And also like genuinely made me laugh out loud. Yes. What do you think was the sexiest part? The drive-in. Do you want to describe it? I do. For people who haven't read the book. (laughs) First of all, everyone should... Definitely get this book from the library and just read the drive-in part. If those two words, drive-in, weren't illustrative enough. They're very illustrative. So she has this moment where she's like, you need to woo me. Because he's like, we're locked up in this weird porn house from this televangelist. The least we can do is take the comfort of one another's bodies. And she's like, you don't even like me. And he's like, I like you fine. And she's like, you gotta woo me. You were gonna say something? I totally forgot that he had hired his lawyer to dig up dirt on her and find a way to punish her for tricking him into impregnating her. Mm -hmm. That's all happening in the background of this. That's all happening in the background of this. And she's like, you don't even like me. You gets to woo me. And he's like, all right, all right, all right, all right. Challenge accepted. He's like, you know, dress up on the date, like wear jeans and like a halter top. And he takes her to the defunct drive-in because when they were driving in, she's like, oh, did you hang out there as a teen? When I was a teen, I was already in my graduate degree and nobody wanted to hang out with me like teenagers. Murmur. (laughs) And he like filed that away. And so on their date, he takes her to the drive-in. They park in the back and like he performs all the motions of the drive-in, even though there's like no one there. It hasn't worked in, you know, a decade or more or whatever. And, you know, he's got beers in the back and like apple juice for her. And then he like, you know, sort of sneaks his arm around her. I thought they would just make out. And then like suddenly out of nowhere, like her shirt's off, her pants are off. There's a very euphemistic like he like, you know, was down her body and liked the smell of all of her. And I was like, I guess this is cunnilingus. I don't know. Yeah, it definitely gestures towards cunnilingus without talking about it. Yeah, which disappointment. But just like having thought that it would just be like a makeout session, potentially like rounding into sexual touching without being penetrative sex. I was really surprised that it became a full on sex scene and like how sexy it was. It was like strangely abrupt. It defied my expectations. And I think that was part of what was so fun about it because I felt as swept up as our heroine did, I think. Like the writing of it was surprising to me. And like, I don't know. I just like, They just made out in the back of a truck. That's true. (laughs) I thought it was sweet. And it's like one of those moments where he proved that he was thinking about her and like had heard her. Once again, going on in the background of this, he's trying to purposefully ruin her life. Yes, he is. So that when he divorces her, she will have nothing. Yep. Not even not even anything to retreat to. Yeah. So that's also happening in the background of uh, what I think is the sexiest part, which is the scene where the power goes out in the mansion and it's totally dark and she refuses to let him see her naked because she feels less than compared to the 20 something models that he normally dates. She was planning on showing him her naked body. Power goes out. It's completely dark. So she sneaks into his room and they make love. Mm -hmm. I thought that, you know, was like a moment of vulnerability, but also protection. She does finally get fully naked in front of him and his brother happens to be at the house and she didn't know. And and then after that, she finds out that he was going to donate a large grant to her research foundation in exchange for her termination of employment. And that's what causes her to go to the house on Harding Mountain to complete her pregnancy. I loved all of their fights, too. Like I was wrestling inside myself with whether or not my sexiest part was the drive in or whether or not it's like when she got mad 
at him after the bar fight and then like broke the box so that he couldn't get in the gate and then like locked every door and window. I loved that. That was very Richard Burton, Elizabeth Taylor. Like they had some real enemies to lovers moments that felt like taut. And both the idea that, you know, he scales the house and sneaks in through an unlocked door and then decides not to sneak up on her to like maintain his dignity and also maintain the illusion that he didn't want her approval for it. So he goes downstairs and announces himself. Mm -hmm. And then her reaction to that is also a similar thing where she doesn't want to reveal that she cares what he thinks. I thought those were really interesting and fun. The Lucky Charms. Adorable. That was fun. Also, when she went to lunch with Kevin and uh, that led to the bar fight and she just started screaming in the bar. Like, there's so much fun stuff in this book. Yeah, it's it's a ride. But what was the weirdest part? I think, like, Jim's shame and vulnerability and, like, what the text wanted me to do with it was the weirdest thing for me. What did the text want you to do with it? Ultimately, since they get together, I think it's that the text wants me to feel bad for him or like see his transformation. But like as every second chance romance wants you to do. Right. And like I just literally felt like I couldn't because like the things that he had done were terrible. And like Lynn had worked so hard. And like the whole thing about a romance novel is that like two primary characters or secondary characters really see one another. Right. Like I see the inside of you. I know who you are. And the fact that Jim didn't for the entirety of their marriage, basically. I don't know. And then I think arguably just gets a kick out of the idea of being in a relationship with someone new at the end of it. Who is this truer to herself, Lynn? Yeah. So they have this whole thing where he's like, I'm Jim Bonner. Like, nice to meet you. And I was just like, I don't accept you back, Jim Bonner. I think you're not a good guy. That's really interesting because earlier in the conversation, you said that the moments you got swept up in were the second chance romance parts, were the B plot. Utterly, utterly swept away. Like, I was very much in it because it didn't feel like a romance subplot to me because I wasn't on Jim's side and like his retelling of the moment where with the cookies is so raw where like he describes her face and she's like you know got pigtails and she's like when are you gonna reveal the joke babe and like haha it's so funny and that she doesn't give him away and like he's going through like how bad he feels and knowing that he's going to like disavow her and like it never really fixes it and he never really fixes it and the book never really fixes it but expects me to think that it's fixed and I'm just like no no thank you I don't think I'd ever read in a romance novel the perspective of like a 50 year old dude being ashamed of what he'd done at 18 and like wanting to go back in time and fix it but also not and like that I think was a really well written perspective but like also I was just like not here for it Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would agree. It's a really well-written perspective. Aside from the fact that like he had a more well-crafted perspective, I don't see how it's any different from any other second chance romance. I guess I'm just more willing to accept like the, you know, like the idea that people change, people grow. And like I see that growth in others. But like it doesn't seem to me that Jim grew. It just like he realized shame. And that's not growth precisely because he doesn't ever take accountability for it. And like there's even this line where she's like, you know, I was 15. And like, I shouldn't have had sex with you, but I didn't know how to say no. And like, that was a moment that like put me on my back heel. I was like, this is actually like a really important thing to say in 1997. And it's important that Lynn says it because it's like this cast back of like all of the nuance of vocabulary in terms of sexuality. Be like, I want to make out with you, but I don't want to go all the way. And I don't want to be a prude, but like, I don't know how to say no. I thought it was interesting that Jim is doing this elaborate apology for the things he did before and then Lynn shares with him like this is the only thing I want an apology for and it was something he had never considered before which is something I've never seen in a second chance romance it's always like oh my god he realized all the things he did wrong he completed the list on his own and now he's apologizing eloquently yeah and shall be forgiven and I thought that was interesting and then he goes on to apologize for that and be like wow I really realize things now I you know I think if we revisited second chance romances, we would discover most of them were just the guy being like, oh, my God, I was a bad person. I'm so sorry. Instead of actually changing. 
And I think you're making a good point. Acknowledging that you've done something wrong isn't the same as changing. It's not. I can't think of a second chance romance we've read where there have been really actionable responses to that. My weirdest part, there was all of this like weird, whimsical stuff that is like so taboo, but is articulated as if it's like plausible as kitchens. <laughs> Like at one point, Jim's looking at his best friend's baby and is like, she's showing every sign of being a real man eater when she grows up. And I'm like, who looks at a six month old and thinks, God, she's going to fuck a lot. <laughs> like, that's so weird. That's and like referring to his parents as our parents so is weird. so weird. Here's this great part where <laughs> Jim is saying like, your mother got you set up so that you would catch a boner mm -hmm. and that you would trap me. And like this idea that like this man is looking at his wife and he's like, you were slutted up as a 15 year old and then presented to me like a cat in heat in order to marry me. It's so 1997. The like local policeman allows them to have sex in the hardware store. Yeah, <laughs> that happened. All right. So is it a womance or a nomance for you? Hmm. That's it's a womance for me. I don't know, man. I like here again. It's like I stayed up until four o'clock in the morning reading this because I couldn't put it down. It's so readable. But there's so much in it, especially the first act. Like when I first started reading this and you were like, hey, what are we going to record? And I was like, basically never. I don't know if I'm going to get through this. Like I hated all the stuff about like the way that they were referring to sex workers. I hated all the stuff about age. But like there's so many like transcendently hilarious moves in this book. I would also argue like a lot of the stuff that like is problematic about like ageism in the book is called out as problematic. Yeah, it is. Like everyone's like, can you imagine being 36 and only dating 23 year olds? Like what a sad existence this person has. And that's not just like her who thinks that it's his teammates who are like, oh, Jesus, it's his coach it's his parents it's his brothers it's everybody everyone thinks he's an idiot for it yeah i mean it's a woman is it you don't have to say it's a womance if you didn't like it. Would you recommend it to people? I think like that's where it's hard, where it's like, I really genuinely enjoyed reading it. I wouldn't recommend it to people. Well, I enjoyed reading the Amish romance, but I wouldn't recommend it to people because the problems with it were too great for me to like want to like potentially subject someone else to it or to like trust that people will understand it. Get it. Not get it, but be able to enjoy it. Because however you experience something is the way you should. This one's hard for me. I'm going to say it's not a romance because it's not a secret baby. It doesn't fulfill the trope. No. Oh, it doesn't fulfill the trope for you. <laughs> but that's not how these tropes and subgenres work. And you know that we have a whole episode where we talk about how you can't just say something isn't that. It's true. There are a lot of tropes in this one. I liked other ice wines better. I think in terms of the culture wars, in terms of like other like 1990s romances, I would recommend something else before this. But I did enjoy the reading experience. I thought this was great. Whenever you framed it like that, I wanted to double down on it more because I'm like, it's all here. <laughs> all of the 90s romance stuff is here. This is it. It's an overstuffed Build-A-Bear workshop Build-A-Bear. It does. It's got the culture wars. It's got khaki as fashion. It does. She basically wears Banana Republic all the time. Yes. Yeah. And headbands. Oh, that is a question. I have I have a legitimate question. What is a clip-on headband? Oh, my God. I have no idea. I also highlighted that. I was like, what is this? What is a clip-on headband? It's a real belt and suspenders piece of hair accessory. I just like, because headbands don't clip on. <laughs> That's why you wear them. A clip is for a clip. A headband is for banding. <laughs> it's like, what is this? A clip-on headband. Maybe we'll find something. Clip-on headband. I just think this book has a weird younger man dynamic. Like, it's got jealousy. It's got laugh-out-loud funny stuff. It's got a physicist. It's just stuffed to the brim. It does have, you know, for a brief moment, a secret baby. I love it. I thought it was... I, I would say it's a womance. It's a womance. It's a hard woe for me. It's a... Uh, yeah. I mean... It's a soft... What for you? 
it's a soft no for me. Like I might gonna think about it some more, but ultimately I think like there were other ice wines that I enjoyed more. Soft no for Isabeau. It's an is a no man's. Is a no man's. But soft because I did enjoy it. I stayed up until four o'clock in the morning. The reading experience was quite good. Read this over Danielle Steele for sure. For sure. No question. But like maybe not over Nora Roberts. Maybe over Nora Roberts. I would actually reckon. Yeah, I liked this better than what we've read of Nora Roberts. There is a Nora Roberts with a priest fetish that I want to throw your way eventually. (laughs) (laughs) Is it a priest fetish? Is he like dressing up as a priest, but he's not really a priest or is it just a priest? So the serial killer that they're tracking. That's the other thing about Nora Roberts. The serial killer that they're tracking uses the priestly vestments to kill. Yeah, I don't want to read that. It's sexy. It's weirdly sexy. The serial killer? And the cop who's chasing him. The serial killer and the cop? You want me to get horny over a serial killer and a cop? Yeah, it gets confusing. No. It was the 90s. This book doesn't have any of that. (laughs) It doesn't. Mostly I just want to talk to you about that book. A different time. All right. Until next time. Loosen your stays. But never your principles. Mwah. Whoa, golly gee. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of Womance. Womance is hosted by Isabeau. That's me. And Morgan, that's me. Production is by Nick Gravelin. Our webmistress is the incomparable Jane Bonzac. And our illustration and logo were created by Mary Reichman. They're the best. If you'd like to follow, creep, or connect with us on our social media platforms, you can find us at mans underscore woe on Twitter, womance on Instagram, or email at womancemail at gmail.com. You can also hang out on our amazing website at womancepodcast.com. You can support us by using our code to visit our sponsors or go to our Patreon where we are Womance. Womance is officially part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Discover more podcasts just like our own centering on romance and reading at frolic.media slash podcast. Until next week. Mwah.